Rodney Evans is a filmmaker, and when he started losing his vision, he had to really change his entire approach to making films. His new documentary, Vision Portraits, follows Rodney and other artists who are visually impaired and or blind. They've all kept working, they've all kept creating art, because as Rodney says, a lack of vision doesn't inhibit one's art. It changes it, but it doesn't have to halt it. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Early in the film, you say that you were afraid of people in the film industry finding out that you're visually impaired because you thought it might affect the work you could get in the future. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is a very valid and real fear. Right. So I wonder what changed. Why decide to come out about this now? It just felt important to the film, honestly. Like, it felt like I was having specific kinds of conversations with these blind and visually impaired artists that was from an insider's perspective. Felt like I was having shared experiences with them, you know, in relationship to the red and white cane, for example, of just like when when do you start to feel the need to, to use it in, in life? When, you know, when can you stop quote unquote passing as fully sighted in, in the world? When are you bumping into too many things? When have you had too many hostile encounters with people? And so I think that the intimacy and the trust was coming through in the kinds of interviews that I was getting from the subjects in the film. And then, yeah, I just, I became more of a character in the film. At first I thought I was just going to probably just be a framing device that just discussed my uh, genetic eye condition and the fact that I have tunnel vision and minimal night vision and, and thus was looking for specific low vision and blind artists and, um, asking them about their creative process. But then as the edit progressed, it just became more and more clear that I was the character that was transforming through the arc of the film and that I was the person that people were going on the journey with and that I just, I needed to become more of a, a central character. So that required being fully honest and true and transparent. So. So you came out for lack of better words to serve the film. Yeah. Not because of a larger mission in your life. Yeah. It made it, it well, it made it a better film and and it released me from any fear or shame or burden that I have vis-a-vis -vis the film industry, knowing who I am and what I am capable of doing. You know, I've made 20 years worth of films as a visually impaired individual. So I don't know. Part of me feels like that's, that's um, a track record that I'm proud of. Not to sound gross, but like, is there a part of being visually impaired that's helpful in an industry where you need to find some way to stand out? Well, no. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like you lead with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like people are... I guess I just meant like it makes you instantly memorable. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's to be determined because it's been such a... You know, the film is just coming out now and people are just starting to learn this aspect of my identity. But... You know, I just, I, I think there's so many aspects of my identity, whether it's my blackness or queerness or my disability that I can draw on that 
gives me a certain insight into specific experiences that can help portray different characters' lives authentically, right? And so I'm willing to draw on those experiences. And, you know, if you have a disabled character, I know what it's like to be treated differently because I'm walking down the street with a red and white cane. I know what it's like for someone to yell, stairs! for no reason or for because they think they're protecting me in the subway in New York because I, they think I might not see the stairs and then I'm going to fall down the stairs and be startled by that. I know what it's like for someone to grab my arm and maneuver me through space because they think that I'm fully blind and they have a full right to just like grab my body and navigate me the way that they see fit, right? So all of those things are 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 things that I think of as experiential tools in my toolkit as a director that other people may not have in order to tell certain stories from a place of authenticity. So if you're, if you're trying to tell a story about someone who's blind or low vision, I think it helps to have someone who's blind or low vision behind the camera in charge of the narrative so that you're getting it right. I mean, mentioning characters on screen who have disabilities, that percentage is incredibly low. Yeah. Too. Like I can I can think of, you know, a few. Yeah. No, it's shockingly low. And I think that like we don't care. And I, and, I, and that sounds like nasty, but I'm thinking about like the Oscar so white hashtag. Mm-hmm. There's never going to be a hashtag like that is Oscar so abled. I said never, but we're not there yet, at least. No, we're not. We're not. And I, you know, I was talking about it the other day in a Q&A after the film. And I do think that, you know, looking at it from the perspective of different movements, I feel like we're just at the beginning. I think there were baby steps, right? So just thinking about like, the LGBTQ kind of representation that existed before the 1990s, right? And before that whole new queer cinema explosion that happened and how hungry everyone was for for certain kinds of representation, how hungry I was, frankly, and how that motivated me to, to want to be a filmmaker. Just the fact that, that people in my college that were my professors, you know, would show me Looking for Langston by Isaac Julian and Tongues Untied by Marlon Riggs and tell me that that was all that existed in terms of black queer experience on film, you know. And so, you know, instead of being whiny about it, I just decided to be proactive about it and to create the images that I wanted to see on screen. And so it's the same thing with disability. I just think it's like it's baby steps like who would have thought that you would have um, transgender actors of color on a weekly series 10 to 15 years ago who would have imagined that that would have been a possibility right and so I think that the more that we're out there talking about it the more that I, I say that one in four people identify as having a disability, but 0.2% of people in films and media are seen as having a disability and that huge void between people's actual lived experiences and what gets reflected back on film is just a huge, huge um, space. And like, what are the reasons behind that space? What is the fear and the shame 
And, um, and frankly, it's just bad business. If 25% of the people in this country are identifying in a certain way, you might want to have some characters that are reflecting their lives that they can empathize with and identify with. And like, I don't know, what are you afraid of? Is, is my question, so. It's also that, like, with the number being one in four people have a disability, that means that everyone knows somebody with a disability. Yeah. And yet it's still not causing these, like, filmmakers to include them in their stories in a really interesting way. Yeah, because I do think that that, that, that fear and that stigma just tends to perpetuate itself, right? So if you feel like you're not going to get a job because you are visually impaired and you choose to stay in the quote-unquote closet about your visual impairment, then that just, you know, it's a self-perpetuating vicious cycle where like, oh, then they're like, we don't know anyone who's visually impaired. We can't help you. Like, we can't hire that person because that person doesn't exist. Where if I stand up and say, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years and I made brother to brother while I was visually impaired and it didn't really impact the quality of that film that now you feel is in the queer canon and is taught in a lot of colleges and universities across the country, you know? And so I think it just takes people, you know, acknowledging their experience and not being afraid that they're not going to get hired. And and frankly, if if it does um, come to come down to the fact that those people don't want to hire me, then they're probably not people that I want to work with anyway. It's just like, then you're d- discriminating, <laughs> whether you know it or not, and, and, and whether you're cool with it or not. I mean, you should know it, right? You, know, you should know that you're being ableist and you, that you have certain like stereotypes and ideas about what disabled people are capable of doing. And that's holding you back and it's holding your business back from things that could be actually extremely profitable for you. And it's holding progress on screen back. Yeah. Um, you mentioned calling someone ableist. I think that if you call someone, let's say, like racist or homophobic, um, hopefully they should be embarrassed. Yeah. But if you call someone an ableist, I think it does not inspire the same embarrassment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably just a lack of knowledge of what the hell it is. <laughs> Number one. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. I mean, they, they don't... They don't, you know, they don't think about it in the same way until you say like, hey, your theater does not have audio description and it doesn't have captioning. And thus, people who are blind or have low vision, um, you know, who may have cataracts, who may have floaters in their eyes, who just may have any kind of visual, you know, disorder, they would like to have those headsets so that they can have a full cinematic experience. And your theater is actually not equipped with that. And you're actually breaking the law. So there was an amendment to the ADA that said if you're, you're showing films on DCP, which is how films are shown digitally now, that you have to have these requirements, these accessibility requirements set up by January of 2019. So that anyone's not who's not doing that is actually open to all sorts of liabilities. And it just gets into this question of like, 
who are you serving? It's like wheelchairs 15 years ago. Like, why do we need to, to, to have a wheelchair? Like, who, who gives a fuck whether someone with a wheelchair wants to come in and watch this movie? I don't give a shit. You know, they could, they could say that, right? And then there was a law that said, no, 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 no. You actually have to have a space in the theater and your door has to be wide enough so that those people can come in and you have to create enough spaces so those people can sit because those people watch movies too. And they have every right to enjoy the full cinematic entertainment <laughs> that you do. And so it's the law. Like, and, and someone's going to come in and sue you up, down, and sideways if you do not comply with the law. So, it, you know, it gets very real when you think about it just in terms of, like, what's legal? And, and what's, what are the legal precedents? And how many theaters are taking the risk uh, of actually just breaking the law by not having these accessibility standards? I mean, I have had such a struggle with film festivals all across this country that do not have audio description, that do not have captioning, that don't even ask you, you know, and maybe it's because, you know, I've made a film about blind and low vision artists. And so blind and low vision people are going to show up because that's going to be the one film this year that is for them. Right. And so if your theater if you don't ask me whether or not I've created an audio description track, then we're already at a loss, right? Because then, then that track's never going to get to you. And then, you know, that, that eight-year-old black girl that's used to going to the Alamo Draft House and asking for the headsets because they do have it is, you know, is going to come up to me and then be like, I loved your film. I really wish you had an audio description and I'll be like, oh, well, it, I do have an audio description, but the festival didn't, they didn't ask me for it. But I'd happy, be happy to email you that version with the audio description. And, and I'm sorry that you didn't have the best viewing experience that you could have had. So it's, it's complicated, but it's just, it's baby steps. Sure. And with your own visual impairment, did, as that started, did you have to take on this role as like an advocate also? Like, does that feel like you had to do that? You were forced into that role? No, you know, I didn't. I mean, I felt like with this specific film, I did because I was a central character and it was what the content of the film was. That That's what it was about, right? And so, so yes, I think part of it was like, this is my experience and it's on a 50-foot screen and I'm talking about it as the main narrative thread tying these different chapters and these different portraits of these other artists together. And I'm the main character, whether I like it or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, like in, in some sense, I'm going to be public about it. And I, and it's, and it's, you know, it'd be hypocritical for me to like make the film and then to be like, oh, I don't want to talk about my disability. Like that's absurd. And I would never do that. But for a film like Brother to Brother, or The Happy Sad, my previous two fiction features, you know, I never talked about it, but the crew certainly knew and the actors knew and I just accommodated and it was just part of how I made films. You know what I mean? The actors knew what I was dealing with 
and so did the crew and they just accommodated accordingly, you know, and it just, it led to a level of honesty and communication among the team that was making the film that I think drew us closer because I was willing to, to come out about my disability and say, Hey, like just first day of tech rehearsal, tech meeting, like I'm visually impaired. I have no peripheral vision. I have tunnel vision. So if you, if you hand me like the call sheet for tomorrow and it looks like I'm not seeing it, I'm not seeing it. So I have to tell you that so that there's no misinterpretation of like, Rodney's being really fucking weird with me. Like he just, I handed him a call sheet. He acted like he didn't see me or I said something to him, you know, from everything from like he extended, someone extended their hand and Rodney didn't shake it. Rodney's a rude motherfucker. Who does that bitch think she is? You know what I mean? How many times that happens before you have to say like, okay, I'm actually not shady at all. I'm actually pretty friendly and nice, but I'm just going to tell you that I have peripheral vision. I don't see things below my chin. I don't see things above my head. So if you don't literally put something in front of my face, I probably won't see it. And that you might have to say, hey, Rodney, here's a call sheet for tomorrow. Hey, Rodney, I just moved the monitor to the left of you. It's, it's, if, if you need to check the shot, it's right there for you. Um, do, is there anything else you need? Like we're, we created a clear path for you to get to the actors. If there's anything that we can do to like get you a more direct path to the actors, are you going to be like with the actors next to the camera as the scene is folding out? And is that where you want to be? Is that where you're the most comfortable? Because it seems like that's what you're doing with most of these scenes. Just questions that get asked. Well, I've already, I've opened that dialogue by on the first tech rehearsal, the first tech meeting being like, this is what I'm dealing with. And so I don't want any misinterpretations happening around this. It's my thing. Ask questions. Like if you, if there's something that seems shady or mis, you're misunderstanding or I feel like it feels like I'm not getting something from you, then, then let me know. You know what I mean? Like let's have an open dialogue, non-hierarchical kind of set where if you have an idea about a scene, you can feel free to contribute to it. I mean, so... I don't know. It's just a different, if it, it's a different perspective and a different way of, of running a set that, um, that I just think is, is a healthier environment to be in that I want to be in. Yeah. We, we've been using the word visually impaired. Can we just define what that means? Cause it's different for everyone, right? Yeah. Did you say your field of vision is that you're like chin to forehead? I describe it as a horse with blinders and I describe it as having tunnel vision, right? I have no peripheral vision and minimal night vision. So, but I have very, very clear central vision. So if I'm looking directly at you, I see everything about you and I see everything about your face and I'm, I fully take you in. But if you come up to me and you're where this microphone is, you're kind of a blur to me. I, I see parts of your face, but not enough. So I need a certain kind of distance to be able to take in your face. If I'm in a movie theater, I need to sit in the back row in order to take in the entire screen usually. So usually theaters that most people like, 
that are like really rectangular and kind of immersive are hard for me because I can't take in the entire screen with theaters that people think are like kind of crappy and look a little bit like TV are a little bit better for me because the screens are smaller and it's easier for me to take in the entire screen. Everything you described like makes it so, is like the reason why you're able to still make films. Like talking to you before this, I was surprised because like you were, to be honest, I'm surprised because you were picking up on like my like micro expressions, like small changes in my face that you're reacting to. Yeah. And that surprised me. No, and it's what, I think it was, it's what helps me frankly, get good performances from actors because actors are so used to people um, directing them from Video Village and not paying attention to what's happening on their face and not knowing whether they're in the moment or not and not just like screaming out directions from like some like netherworld where like I'm literally like right next to you and I'm looking at you and I kind of know where you are and I know what needs to be happening in this scene in order for this narrative to progress in a specific way. So if you're not where you need to be, I'm going to see it on your face, right? And if you're not connecting with the person in the scene with you, I'm going to see that also. And then I'm going to have to think about what I need to say to one of you or both of you to get you to where you need to be. So whether that's asking X actor to step out for a second and go out into the hallway and really talk about like what just happened before this scene and why this character might be in this specific mental space and what he might need to get out of this scene and just reiterating that after we've done it 15 times and you're so tired that you're like a robot... Like, I need to be paying attention to the fact that you've turned into a robot and that you're not giving me, you know what I mean? Like, that's, and some people, they're not watching for that. They're not there for that. They don't make the time for that. And so for me, I've worked on really small films, so I I rehearse with the actors really, really closely. And a lot of people think of my process as akin to theater, and I've always been told that, I would make a really good theater director because I form a troupe with the actors and I kind of direct each relationship. When you first got the diagnosis, was work the first thing you thought about? I don't think I, I no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it was work. I think it was more like safety. I guess th- there tends to be this sort of like doom and gloom narrative that gets placed on this kind of diagnosis that I, I have to say that I didn't, experience that much. For me, it was almost like helpful to have some reasoning behind all of these missed visual cues that I was experiencing. You know, the handshake that got extended, you know, the hand that got extended for a handshake that I didn't see where someone would say, aren't you going to shake my hand? And I would be really embarrassed that I didn't see their hand so it was just like a name for the thing that you'd already been living with. Yeah. So as like a gay person in dating, do you see the, your disability being experienced by other people like that? Like just viewing it as tragedy? I mean, it's hard to say because I don't, I don't experience it from their perspective. But I do think that if I were in a bar with a red and white cane, I would probably be less 
likely to be the person that got walked up to. It is so interesting that you, with your disability, have the ability to like fold it up and put it in your pocket and kind of like go stealth, you know, if you choose to. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone has that like option. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And I, and I, but I think that also living in New York City, I use it more than I don't, if that makes sense. Most of those bars are pretty dark. If I'm meeting someone at a restaurant, the restaurant's probably pretty crowded. The street's probably pretty crowded. The chances are that I'm going to have it out when I'm meeting that person, right? So they're going to know, and whether or not they're cool with it is probably going to be a factor in whether or not there's going to be a second date. So in some ways, it's like a good filter. Oh, it's the, it's the first test. Yeah, it's like, if you can't handle that, then I'm, I'm not going to fuck with you. A lot of the film is just you looking for guidance on how to be a visually impaired artist. Yeah. And I just want to know, like, where are you at in that journey? Like, do you feel like you have it figured out? Are you still looking? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've come to a place of of acceptance and of knowing what I am capable of and knowing what I have to contribute and knowing what kinds of stories I'm looking to tell. And so I think it, it has really helped in terms of, of just really focusing on stories that move me from my own experience that are my own passion projects. Like I have this saying, like every project is a passion project because like I don't understand like why one gives over three years of their life to something that's not a passion project. But then also working in Hollywood, sometimes you see someone's project and you're like, oh, why did you want to spend three years working on that? Yeah, no, exactly. And maybe that's part of the reason I don't live here is that like I've never had to take on a project to make money. That's never been the end goal for me. Like I've always had a, a teaching position that has provided a bed of financial support for me. And I enjoy teaching. Like I like nurturing the next generation of filmmakers to slay. When the passion dissipates for me for film is when I step out of the game. When I'm literally like, I'm out. Like I have no, I have zero passion for this. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to do a little dance for you so that you can pay me $2 million to do this thing that I really don't give a shit about. And I think a lot of people get seduced by, by the glamour and the money and, and the certain um, accoutrements that come with success. And I don't need those accoutrements. I own my co-op in Brooklyn. I'm good. So, you know, it's like, why would, I, why would I spend two or three years of my life doing that? Like, who, who um, do I need to prove something to in order to do that? Like, what, what quantity of films do I need to generate in order to call myself successful. Like, I'd like to have 10 kick-ass films that I was really passionate about that I think are incredibly great at the end of my life than have maybe eight or, 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 are really good, maybe 20 are watchable, and maybe 20 are pretty goddamn awful. And I'm re- kind of embarrassed 
that I took the money to make them. Like, I don't want that career. Of course not. No, I'm going to do one. And I'm going to make it good, <laughs> you know, and my name's going to mean something. And if that's, you know, if that, that's all you have, then that's all you have. It's like every project has got to be a passion project. Like, put your passion into it. Put your heart into it. If you're not, then, like, then do something else. I agree. I think that's a great place to leave it on, too. Yeah. Thanks for this. Thank you. That is it for today. We'll be back next week. Until then, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to stay connected and to recommend guests. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosparay, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week. Thank you.